This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Genesis 33. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. And he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servants. And the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? He said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please, my Lord, go on ahead before his servants. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, where he came from Paddan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would ready our hearts to receive it, that you would speak your truth to us through it, that we would see your faithfulness to your people, 
that most of all that we would be comforted and assured by our Lord Jesus Christ, who Jacob partook of by the types and shadows. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Have you ever had an awkward reunion? Or at least a reunion that going in you weren't sure how it was going to go. It's always a bit strange to see someone that you haven't for a very long time. You never know quite how it will go because people change over time and you change over time. Maybe you've gone to one of your school reunions. My 10-year reunion was some years ago now and I skipped it. I didn't go. I guess I couldn't handle the prospect. And it does seem that attendance at these in general are low. I, I heard about mine after the fact, and of the 29 people in my graduating class, all of which are still living as far as I know, only about a half dozen actually came back to participate in the festivities. See, that distance of time often insulates us from the difficult and the awkward and even the painful. But what if the discomfort of such a reunion was ratcheted up a bit? What if you were about to be reunited with someone you hadn't seen for 20 years, and it just so happened the last time you saw that person, they wanted to kill you? That would be a tall order. I think if it were me, I would uh, probably not agree to showing up, at least until I had some pretty strong assurances that things were different. But that is exactly the situation Jacob finds himself in as we come to Genesis chapter 33. We saw the setup for it last week. God has commanded Jacob to come back to Canaan. Part of coming back to Canaan means that he's going to have to deal with Esau once again. Jacob had done Esau wrong severely when they were younger. So wrong that the whole reason Jacob had to leave Canaan was because Esau wanted to murder him. But Jacob is coming back a different person. And so rather than run and hide and shrink from the past, Jacob wants to face it. So in the previous chapter, we saw that Jacob sent messengers to Esau. He wanted to deal openly with him. He wanted to see his brother, and he wanted his brother to know where he had been and how God had blessed him. Of course, Esau's response was to notify Jacob that he was coming with 400 men. A part of this was probably that Esau did not know what to expect from Jacob. Last time Jacob was around, he meant and did him harm. So the 400 could be a security measure. But it is also a show of Esau's own wealth and prosperity. Again, if you can command 400 men to come with you to your family reunion, you are a man of some power and means. So what happens as Jacob now enters Canaan after his 20-year absence? Well, we'll see today something of a juxtaposition, something of a almost internal dissonance with Jacob. Because on one hand, he's coming back, and he's being good to Esau, and Esau is being good to him. And yet we're also going to see maybe some lingering effects of the old Jacob. We see Jacob's continued struggle and wrestling with sin. And we'll see this in our text today in three points. First, there is brotherhood in verses 1 through 4. So Jacob and Esau are reunited 
with some surprising results. And second, we see blessings in verses 5 through 11. We see how both Jacob and Esau have been blessed, and we see Jacob's insistence on blessing Esau. But then third, we see building. In verses 12 through 20, we see that Jacob resettles in the land of promise, apart from Esau. So we have brotherhood, blessings, and building. Those are our points for this morning. So first we see brotherhood in verses 1 through 4. After this buildup of anticipation that came last week, Esau and his small army of 400 men came to Jacob. We see that Jacob approaches with exceeding caution. He divides up his children by their mothers so they cannot all be attacked and killed at once. Of course, we also see in this that Jacob is continuing to show his favoritism among his children. We see that the children of the maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah, they were put in the front so that if anything went wrong, they would be the first to be killed or injured. He then follows that with Leah and her children. Now that would be the largest group. They're clearly, though, being treated as the second class here, the next line of defense. And it is only after that that Jacob sends his obvious favorites, Rachel, his wife, and her son, Joseph. So what we see here is that Jacob, though he has learned and grown much and been sanctified by the work of God in him, he is not perfected. Because none are completely perfected from sin in this life. This favoritism that Jacob continues to show for Rachel and her children will be a persistent and continued source of grief and conflict for Jacob's family for the rest of his life. The whole future ordeal in which Joseph will be sold into slavery in Egypt will be born out of his brother's resentment towards Jacob's favoritism. When Jacob has so multiplied wives and children, it would be difficult enough to show everyone the husbandly and fatherly affection they need, all the more when Jacob has no problem with this favoritism that he shows. But that is not the story for today. So Jacob himself crosses over in front before his wives and children. After he's previously demonstrated some timidity, he is now finally taking a position of leadership. But then we see that he bows seven times before Esau. He is showing him great honor and respect as he approaches. He wants to be clear to Esau how he has changed and how he no longer intends to do him any harm. But Esau, for his part, is not interested in these formalities. He neither engages in them himself, nor does he attack Jacob or do any of the harm that Jacob feared. Instead, he gives a very abrupt and affectionate and welcoming greeting. He runs up to Jacob, gives him a big old hug, and kissed him, and together they wept. It's really quite a beautiful and moving picture. For everything that happened, for all the sin and pain and sorrow of the past that had estranged them, somewhere deep within these two brothers, they loved each other and they missed each other, and 20 years of that had been stored up and let out all at once. It's a 
Again, a beautiful, almost unexpected picture of peace and reconciliation. But it is more than that. Jacob had good reason to expect Esau to do him harm. And Esau was no fearer of God. He had no particular reason to be good or benevolent to Jacob. And yet God was in control. God is sovereign even over his enemies. He orders even the pagans for his glory and the good of his people. Whatever wrath Esau once carried for Jacob, some of it even righteous and justified given the evil and treachery Jacob did, that has long since faded away. The God who ordered Jacob to return to Canaan has ordered things in Canaan so that Jacob can safely return and continue to be blessed and prosperous there without any danger from his unbelieving brother. But the two of them have some catching up to do. This brings us to our second point. After brotherhood, we come to the blessings in verses 5 through 11. So Esau sees all the women and children Jacob has brought with him. He's never met any of them before. So he wants to know who they are. So Jacob introduces them, first the maidservants and their children, then Leah and her children, and then finally Rachel and Joseph. All of them come before Esau, and they bow as a sign of respect. But again, quite a scene, all of Jacob's family, none of whom was around when Jacob left, meeting brother-in-law or uncle Esau for the first time. But then there is another matter that Esau wants to discuss, the matter of these gifts that Jacob sent on ahead. Remember last week that Jacob sent these groups of animals, over 300 animals in total of various kinds. And that is what Esau is asking about in verse 8, the company he met, all these groups of servants and animals that kept coming to Esau and being offered to him. Esau wants to know why Jacob did all of this. Well, Jacob tells Esau that they were to find favor in his sight. They were a gift of goodwill. Jacob is addressing Esau here as his Lord, as his master. He is showing humility. Now, it's fascinating that he does this because technically, according to how the birthright and blessings were worked out earlier, all of Isaac's household, including Esau, was committed to Jacob. Jacob was actually Esau's Lord. But Jacob is not interested in lording over. Young Jacob probably would have loved nothing more than to rule and dominate over his brother. But the changed Jacob returns from the east with a different set of priorities. Sure, Jacob wants safe passage and protection from any personal vengeance and wrath that Esau plotted, but he also likely does regret what he has done. He wants to turn a new leaf over in the relationship. While Jacob would have had every right to demand and command things of Esau, given his rank in the family, Jacob wants a brother, not a slave. Really, Jacob is treating himself as a servant and Esau as his master. But Esau doesn't want to accept the gift. Turns out he also has done quite well for himself in the time Jacob has been gone. He's been materially prosperous. As we've seen before in Genesis, so we see again, though many break off and separate from the city of God, 
by common grace, God still allows people and nations and cultures to grow and develop and prosper in the world, even apart from true knowledge and worship of God. We saw this before after creation with the descendants of Cain, after the flood with the descendants of Ham, later with Ishmael, who would become a great nation, but all of these apart from the knowledge of the Lord. And now we see it again with Esau. Esau is wealthy and prosperous and powerful. He's got these 400 men with him to show that. And he will grow into a great nation, him and his descendants. But that nation will be impoverished in the most important of ways. It will not fear the Lord or worship him. But back to the matter at hand. Esau wants to refuse Jacob's gift. He doesn't need it. He has enough for himself, he says. Now that is true enough, but we might also wonder if there are other motivations behind Esau's reluctance. While Esau has seemingly come to Jacob in goodwill, he may still have some lingering doubts as to how true and noble Jacob's intentions really were. After all, there was this history of treachery and swindling. Maybe Esau in his heart was harboring a certain amount of resentment and unforgiveness. He refused to be enriched and helped by a brother that had once harmed him and taken so much from him. But Jacob insists. He continues to strike this posture of great humility towards Esau. He says in verse 10 that, he has seen Esau as though he had seen the face of God. There is perhaps a certain attempt at flattery here, for Esau was no God. He was not even a worshiper of God. But Jacob certainly regards Esau more highly now than he once did. And this isn't just an attempt to manipulate Esau or buy off his favor. He is truly thankful and grateful for Esau's brotherly reception. Because Jacob had actually seen the face of God. We just saw this again in our last passage where Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed. Jacob had experienced the grace and favor and help of God. See, when God comes to man, strict justice would dictate that fallen and sinful man must be destroyed and consumed and condemned. And yet by grace... God was pleased to help and bless sinful Jacob. And a picture of this grace is painted in how Jacob returns to Esau. Esau would have every reason to come to Jacob in wrath and vengeance for all of Jacob's past transgressions, and yet he doesn't. And Jacob, having experienced the grace of God, knows to serve God with gratitude and thanksgiving. Similarly, as Esau has not come to Jacob in wrath and vengeance, Jacob wants to display his gratitude by offering these gifts to him. Now, Jacob also wants to be clear to Esau that he has enough. Giving away this gift would pose no major harm or hindrance to him. But unlike Esau, Jacob is quick to acknowledge where these blessings have come from. He does this in verse 11. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. 
The last time Jacob and Esau interacted was when Jacob was stealing Esau's blessing. Now some commentators say that this insistence on Esau taking the gift is something of a veiled admission on Jacob's part that he had stolen Esau's blessing, that he had done Esau wrong and needed to make up for it. And it may well be. Jacob is at least partly acting out of contrition for his past sins against Esau. But most importantly, Jacob is making clear where his blessings come from. Esau didn't do that. Esau just said he had enough and left it at that. But Jacob says he has enough only after acknowledging that God gave it to him. This is a difference of life and a difference of perspective in the two cities. In the city of man, man will strive and work and accumulate and believe that he has come into his success and prosperity by his own hand. But the city of God is a people of thankfulness that acknowledge whatever benefits and blessings they receive, they come not by chance or works or goodness or virtue in us, but from God's favor and blessing. So finally, at the end of verse 11, it seems Jacob wears Esau down such that he takes the gifts from Jacob. He doesn't need it, but Jacob didn't need to keep it. And Jacob wants Esau to be blessed by his hand. But now that the matter of Jacob and Esau's reunion has been addressed, what will happen next? Well, this brings us to our final point. After brotherhood and blessings, we come to building in verses 12 through 20. Now that the meeting and the gifts have been addressed, Esau wants them to journey together. Of course, there is a problem here. Jacob has been commanded by the Lord to return to Canaan. And Esau doesn't live in Canaan anymore. He dwells in the land of Mount Seir the land that will be populated by his descendants and come to be known as the land of Edom. Jacob is not supposed to dwell where they dwell. He has a particular mission and a particular destination that has been given to him by God. Now, he also still might maintain some doubt about Esau's intentions as going with Esau to his home turf, a trap. It likely wasn't. It seems that Esau really is wanting to get along. But what is more fundamental here is that Jacob must be loyal to God before being loyal to family. He cares for Esau. He wants Esau's good, and he's demonstrated that. But there are limitations. He cannot be so committed to family that it causes him to turn aside from God's will towards other things. Now, this can be a difficult teaching. Christians are typically known for caring about family and maintaining close family ties. And in general, family is a good thing, a blessing from God. But we must maintain the proper order of loves and priorities. We love and care for our families, but we cannot follow our families into disobedience against God. Esau wants Jacob to go to Seir. God wants Jacob to go to Canaan. And so Jacob had better go to Canaan. But many people, sadly, even many theologians and pastors and church leaders have 
followed their families right off a cliff into disobedience and rebellion. Just as one such example that's all too common in our day, I've heard of many cases where a child embraces a homosexual or transgender identity and suddenly the parents go from being Orthodox Christians who believe firmly what God's Word teaches to being compromised and compromising and embracing sin and calling it good. Finding excuses to accept and embrace what the world embraces and reject what God has clearly said. What these sort of things show is that loyalty to family can become greater than loyalty to God, and we must guard against this. As sad and painful as it may be, obedience to God must come first. So Jacob will not go with Esau. Now he first tries to rebuff Esau by observing that his family and his flocks are weak and tired. They're not able to travel at that pace at this time. That may have been true. But we have to ask, why not just tell Esau the whole truth? I can't go with you. I have to go to Canaan. God told me so. Hard to tell, but it does seem that Jacob does use a bit of dishonesty here. It seems that he and Esau part under the impression that Jacob is eventually going to follow Esau, but he doesn't. He splits off and goes his own way. Esau even offers to leave some people with Jacob to help him. But again, Jacob declines because ultimately he has no interest in going where Esau wants to go. Now again, the ultimate intention of this is right. He doesn't want to turn aside from God's purposes and what God has called him to do. And yet we still see this fear of Esau that leads to some treachery dealing with Esau. What we see here again is that Jacob is not perfect. Jacob has not been perfected. God has helped him and grown him, but he hasn't arrived. He continues to struggle with sin and weakness, just as we all do throughout this life. And yet... God is faithful to his people. So anyway, Esau goes back to his home in Seir, whereas Jacob goes on his journey first to this place called Succoth, where he dwells temporarily, and then he journeys further to Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Now it's not quite Bethel, it's not where he set out, not where he made his vow to God and God vowed to him to bring him back. He stops just short of that goal, close to it, within the land, but still not quite there. We also see Jacob do something here that his fathers had not done. He buys from the Shechemites a piece of land to live on. Up to this point, the only land that any of his family had had in Canaan was a burial plot that Abraham had purchased. But Jacob is not so content to dwell as a pilgrim in a strange land. He actually buys a piece to live on for a hundred pieces of money. It's a place to pitch his tent near the city of Shechem. He's not in the city. Because being in the city would be sinful. It would be a mixing of the city of God and the city of man. But it's close enough to the city that some of the problems and some of that mixing are going to happen anyway in the next chapter. 
So again, this is not Bethel. Jacob stops just short. He will eventually get back to Bethel in chapter 35, but not until some terrible things happen in Shechem that we will see next time. Now, it doesn't mean that all is wrong or all is lost in Shechem. We do see that when Jacob comes to this temporary dwelling place, he does prioritize there the worship of God. He builds an altar there and calls it El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. Jacob is clear, even as he will dwell near these Canaanite pagans for a time, that God is his God and there is no other. And God will be his God even as he is a stranger in a strange land. So we have seen today that God is with Jacob on his journey as he returns to the place God has called him to. We see even that God has restrained Esau and turned the heart of Esau towards Jacob, even as Esau himself does not regard God. We see that God has blessed Jacob, has sanctified Jacob, even turned Jacob's heart towards the good of his brother. But we also see limitations. We do see that Jacob cannot let his love and care for his brother turn him aside from God's purposes. And we also have seen in this passage different examples of how Jacob is still a work in progress. He has not fully arrived. He is not perfected. He is not fully sanctified because he is still a fallen sinful man in a fallen sinful world. He still plays favorites in his family. He's not truthful and forthright with his brother. We'll see in the coming chapter more trouble in Jacob's family as he stops short of the ultimate goal in Shechem. It doesn't seem he provides the care and oversight for his children that he should. And yet, this has been a great journey for Jacob. Not great because of who he is and what he has done as we see his continued sins and limitations, but it has been a great journey because of what God has done in him and for him. Jacob vowed at Bethel when his journey began to serve and worship God if God would be for him and God has delivered. Of course, this is not merely physical and temporal deliverance, but most of all, it is spiritual deliverance. God delivers Jacob from sin, forgives his sins, continues to love and help and bless him despite his sins. Jacob, through types and shadows, such as the sacrifices he would offer on this altar named for God, the God of Israel, knows and sees and partakes of Christ in whom forgiveness of sins comes. The Christ who was the Savior of Jacob is the Savior of all who, though still sinners in a fallen world, repent of their sins and trust in Christ for forgiveness and deliverance. Christ lived a perfect life, and he died so that sinners like Jacob and like you and like me might live. May we all trust in him today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it tells us. We thank you that even as we, like Jacob, still 
battle sin and its lingering effects in this life and in this world. You are still with us. You are for us. You forgive us. And more and more by your spirit, you sanctify us just as you did with Jacob. We pray that you would help us, that you would guide us in this world. We pray that you would order all things for our good and for your glory. We pray most of all that you would write on our hope, on our hearts, the hope that we have in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.